this morning I kind of ran out of time trying to talk about the Acts chapter 2. I Somehow I need to measure myself. I get in the beginning parts and I say, I go overboard there and I'm rushing through the last part. And the last part of Acts chapter 2 is the huge transformation in attitudes and hearts and spirits of the church. You know, and it's just, you know, they all had all things in common and they're sharing meals together and, and even the community that rejected them looks at them and says, this is really something. And then, you know, Acts 2.47 is the verse where it says, God's the one that was doing the work. You know, and we talk about, you know, the, God through the Holy Spirit, he says, the Lord was adding to their number each day those who are being saved. And so when we get to, now we're still over here in, in, in Ephesians, and in chapter 4, and he's finally gotten to pass, and he's, he's describing what we what he called the manifold wisdom of God, and I you know I put a, this up here because the best word I can use to kind of relate it to is a, is is God's tapestry. When God takes all the different things and under His will and His plan and His commandments puts them together, it it creates this beautiful picture for the world. And when He tells us this, He says it's God's manifold wisdom. And that is the church. And so he says the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known through the church. And it's and Paul talks about this new unity of all mankind that comes through the church. Now obviously when you think about it, and you know, in Ephesus, not everyone believed. And that's the darkness. But the light that was being seen throughout the, you know, the Roman Empire as the church continued to spread, was catching more and more hearts of, of so many different people. And he, he describes it, it's not just, you know, a, a select group, but he describes it, he says, he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. You know, in the context of Ephesians, obviously, he's talking about the Jew and Gentile, and he's as far out as the in the Roman Empire as, as the Ephesian Valley. And it's and at that time, the gospel had already spread even as far as Rome, spreading throughout northern Africa and through Asia Minor. And I don't know when Thomas ever finally made it as far as he did, going as far as India. But he says God's word is being preached to those from anywhere and everywhere. You know, at this time, though, you kind of hear this and you think, yes, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just, what did Rodney King say? <laughs> Can't we all just get along? You know, and, but we're not just speaking of toleration for one another or just a cooperative spirit. When we talk about the manifold wisdom of God through the church, we're talking about drastic changes in lifestyle that takes place. The same thing that you see in Acts chapter 2 is the same thing that they're experiencing in the Ephesian Valley. Paul speaks of this as the, the wisdom of God, as God guides and the Holy Spirit living takes place. You know, Jesus, he must have sounded like a broken record. He had three years of his sermons. And Matthew says, if you want to sum it up, you know, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, you've got all these different lessons. But if you want to sum up what Jesus said over and over again, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of his sermons, all of his conversations, his debates, his healings, his actions, all had this singular message. And what he's saying is, change now. Heaven's ways 
are coming. Acts chapter 2, heaven's ways arrive. And in Ephesians, heaven's ways are being put into practice and being put into life for all the world to see. All of a sudden, there is a message of hope. And stop just a little bit on that, because I really think that message of hope may be one of the biggest crises we have for the modern church, because I'm not sure today if we really understand what hope is. What do we talk about when we quote scriptures? How do we define hope? Well, here's what I see is the crisis. Most of us like our lives. And if you don't like your life, it's like you could tweak it just a little bit here and there and it would be all right. If I could just get the right promotion, if I could just find the right mate. You know, I think about my own life and I've got a pretty good life. I've got a good family. I've got a nice house. I've got a friendly dog. Ugly dog, but it's friendly. <laughs> my refrigerator is full. So if you talk about salvation and hope and fears, what are my fears? Will the economy hold? Will a bad guy break in during the middle of the night? Les was here before armed. I guess he had to go to take on, uh, he has to work this morning. And I asked if I could borrow his, um, his belt. It might help on the invitation song a little bit. <laughs> I fear will I have an auto accident. You would not believe after you've been T-boned by somebody in an intersection how often you look the, both ways many, many, many times. What about my health, my wife's health, my children's jobs, my marriage, their marriages? Just general happiness. Is it, does that sound familiar with what you place as what you consider the good life or the hopeful life? You name your solution. What is it to live the good life? And, you know, it's not a bad list. I've done pretty well, and I fear a few things, and if you could just take care of those, everything would be better. Wouldn't it be nice if we have better jobs? Maybe we could all win the lottery. I don't think that would work quite well as we hope, but wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be good if there were no more bad guys? What about Stepford Wives? Or Stepford husbands. Yeah, you're either too young or too old for that one, I guess. <laughs> and finally, no death. And I'm not arguing with you when, when we talk about this as, as really good stuff. And it's an elusive dream that so many of us have because if we talk about hope and our fears and what we want out of life and what we can't get and what we don't think is fair, that's kind of where the list goes. My point is, I don't think that we really see the darkness of this world. And I really don't think we even understand the light sometimes. Paul's day, I think people really understood it. I think they knew what light and darkness was, and that's what made his message so dynamic and so powerful and so convincing and so hopeful. They were rich, they were poor, they were strong, they were weak, they were free, they were slaves. But it didn't matter where he lived, people saw the darkness. And then comes the message of a cross. A message of a resurrection. The message of overcoming the devastation of sin. A message of hope, even in the darkest of place. I think sometimes today, we're, we, the problem is we try to accommodate the darkness. 
You know, and I'm sure they did the same thing in the first century church also in some corners. But there's too many of us today that we want both worlds. We want, you know, what are the two worlds we want? We want all of the good life here, but we know good and well this life won't last forever. So we want that emergency parachute we call eternal life. We call that salvation. We call that the good life. You know what God calls it? Go back and read your prophets. He calls it adultery. And he lets you know that if you think that you can have the good life here, and that's your priority, and then you get the emergency parachute when it's all done. You know, this is where I want to be. Just tweak it a little bit. But if that doesn't work, then give me heaven. Let it not end in the mortuary. Like the Arabs used to say, he who rides two camels falls between. So Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, let me affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And the futility of their minds, being darkness darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, and they have become calloused, and having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. What Paul's actually saying there is he calls us to the manifold wisdom of God through the church, the wisdom of God seen as we together, as diverse as we are, living together under the will of God, is that we choose a path that is so radically different from the world that it's the difference between light and darkness. But to do that, we really have to recognize the darkness that surrounds us and the hopelessness that's there. And as cultures change and as civilizations change and as countries and nations change, we can see some of these things. And, and it, when it's, you know, when I see somebody whose earlobes hang down to here, I think, what's going on? Something bad happened. You know, you used to have to look at National Geographic for that when I was a kid. Now you just have to go to Kmart, well, Walmart. And sometimes we see these things, that that's radically different. That must be evil. Well, our nation, I think, in a lot of time, ways has always been like this. That which you see that is not your normal, something that you're not familiar with, your customs, you call it darkness. And a lot of times you might be right. You know when most Christians start wringing their hands in despair? And this reflects on our understanding of light and hope. We start wringing our hands in despair when the so-called good life of this earth and of this way is being threatened. Then all of a sudden it's personal. So, you know, if you're of my generation, you see what the younger people are doing, and the skinny jeans, are they crazy? Well, that's not necessarily a sign of, well, it might be a sign of evil if I tried them. <laughs> but there are things in our culture of, of darkness that we just need to recognize that the goal, you know, what do we call it? The American dream. What is the God dream? Not the American dream. So what Paul tells us to do in this verse that we're looking at here is drop out of the Gentile marathon, the worldly ways, the darkness. They just, the, the world just doesn't understand because they don't have God. 
But his point is, we as the church, the manifold wisdom of God, we do understand because we have something they don't have. We have God. You know, I love, every time I get to a point like this, my mind goes to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He goes, what we saw in the beginning, what our hands handled, what we, you know, it was life. And we want to share that with you. He says, we want to share the heart and the fellowship of God with you. Too often, what Christians want is a better hope of this world. Paul tells us to drop out of this race. They are excluded from the life of God. You are included in the life of God. And he says, this is the problem with it, with our world. And think about if it's happening to us, because they have become callous. Because they have given themselves over to sensualities for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now the extreme, that's way out beyond me. I can see the callousness of their heart. I'm not sure if I see it in my own. Because so much of our life, what are, are the goals? You know, that, that box that you have wired in your house that you watch so many more hours a week than you read your scriptures. What's the goal of that thing? What's the teaching of that thing? And we've gotten to with the point where we have become so callous in our understanding that what shocked us 25, 30 years ago, eh, that's just the way it is today. And if you're a whole lot older than that, what shocked you 50 years ago? And I wonder for the young people here, what's gonna, what is it that shocks them now that won't be shocking 20 years in the future? The world has become callous because their goal is pleasure. The good life. And it's not necessarily always what we consider the top evil sins. You know, I've put them up here, these... But how often do we see these things? Pride, lust, greed, envy, gluttony, wrath, <laughs> you know. How often are those things just normal way of life? Does it sound familiar? It really, that, you know, signpost sounds like the new national quest. And, but in my opinion, it's, I don't want to take it out on this generation. First off, if I'm going to yell at the young people, I will first need to slap their parents and their grandparents. But then the reality of it is, it's always been this way. You name me the generation that has not lived in this callous darkness. Name me the, the, the decade. Show me the century. We have actually at least 6,000 years of recorded history of darkness. But does the church see the extreme difference between who they are, what their hope is, and what the world has? Or do we just want to clean up the world a little bit? Paul says that's not the way you learn Christ. He goes, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in him. And he says, that's not the way. But then all of a sudden he stops and says, well, what kind of message did you come up with? What did you believe? Because you were supposed to lay aside the former way of life. It was corrupt anyhow. It was deceitful. And you have a renewal of the spirit of your mind. The new self. 
which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and the truth. And with that, we kind of need to hit the pause button just a second. And I've talked many times in the past several weeks about the secular church, the worldly imitation of God's people. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what message did you respond to when you became a believer, a Christian, a disciple? What message did you obey? I'm afraid too many of us have preached and too many of us have believed a message that says we need to just enjoy the good life here as much as you can. And if you get baptized, this wonderful way of life will be yours forever. And there'll be no hell. There'll be no bad stuff. And it sounds like a good message. The problem is it's a message that really doesn't show the drastic change, the repentance. No radical change, no kingdom of heaven ruling in our hearts, but just fear of death taken out of the way. Paul says, he goes, you lay aside the old self which was being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit. And what I love here, he says, put on the new self in the likeness of God. Has it ever occurred to you to seek God's likeness? That your goal is to be like God. So Paul gives us a list of newness, things that what it means to live the likeness of God. And he is very simple things. Speak truth, be honest. Be responsible for your own anger, not controlled by your anger. So you should have your Bibles open and read what it actually says and see if Mark's right or not. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And, you know, when he says that, Paul's talking about your emotional discipline. You know, read, read what he says. He says, don't, he be responsible for your own, your own anger. Don't be controlled by your anger. Because, because that would give the devil an opportunity. It's amazing when the emotions take over, how righteousness leaves. And he says, and in your life, you work with your own hands not so you can get ahead in this world, not so you can have the American dream, but so that you can share what you have. He says, and you control the holiness of your tongue. And then verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I kind of reverse that. Make the Holy Spirit smile. To grieve the Holy Spirit is to ignore everything that Paul says in this list that we just read make the Holy Spirit smile is to be obedient to everything that's in that list. And when the Holy Spirit smiles, you will become God-like. See how he connects those two things? He goes, he goes, you put on the likeness of God. And he says, and here's what you do. And he goes, if you don't do it, you break the Holy Spirit's heart. You grieve the Holy Spirit. But on the reverse of that, if you obey these things, if you make this your lifestyle together as the church, you make the Holy Spirit smile. And our actions towards one another, we make our own personal choices. But when the manifold wisdom of God is seen in the church, you don't allow circumstances to control who you are. Instead, my faith, my love for God, those things dictate how I respond to every circumstance. When I do that, 
when you and I do that, then God's wisdom is seen in the church. We become light in the darkest corners of this planet because we're not waiting for an earthly paradise. We seek heaven, we reach for God, but we do it so strongly that we become the likeness of God even now here on earth. You know, the gospel of Jesus wasn't brought so you could find hope in this world, but how to live that hope in this world. Sounds like the same thing to you? It's radically different. Because we have a passion-driven, self-serving lifestyle of me, mine, and, and those that belong to me. It's time we make our goal to make the Holy Spirit smile. His final verse there is in this section. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. It sounds simple. But it is a guide, not from human nature, but by the nature of God, God's will, and God's commandments. It's guided by the reality that other people matter more than I matter. You go through this and you read the unity that he describes there. It's not just we all get along. We all cooperate. But we're all guided by the nature and the heart of God. And that is the wisdom of God that is seen in this dark world. It's God's manifold wisdom, God's tapestry, the church. Some of you are still living a message that really is not preached in Scripture. It's preached every Sunday morning by the televangelist. It's preached in a lot of different church buildings, and hopefully this is an exception. But the call is for you to be in the likeness of God, in the fellowship of God. The call is for you to have a life so close to God that you make the Holy Spirit smile. It only comes through radical change. It only comes when this world is no longer what matters. We didn't get into our Acts 2.38 this morning. Uh, you know, and of all verses in Acts chapter 2, that's the one we're supposed to talk about. But it is a powerful verse because he says, you change. You are buried in baptism. You die. And you are raised to a newness of life. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not about winning in this world. It's about winning in spite of this world. It's about victory of light over darkness. It's about being one with God. And it starts now. Whatever you need, though, we'd ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today, why from the sunshine of love?